This is Forced Migration Review, Issue 61, June 2019. Over-researching migration hotspots, ethical issues from the Carteret Islands, by Johannes M. Lutz. The situation of the Carteret Islanders, often characterized as the first climate change refugees, has attracted much research interest. What is the impact of such interest, and are standards ethics compliance processes appropriate? A few years ago, as part of my research into climate change-related migration, I carried out a pilot study to measure how best to engage with individuals and communities in remote atolls to the north and northeast of Bougainville, an autonomous region of Papua New Guinea, and note one. This location was specifically chosen following prior field research, and note two, looking into suggestions that islanders in this part of the world might be particularly affected by climate change-related rises in sea level, which have multiple causes and which vary across oceans depending on location. And note three. After several weeks, the pilot study engaged research participants, both migrants and hosts in the communities of origin and destination, in various locations. Importantly, this included the Tulun Atoll, also known as the Carteret Islands or Kilinailau, a remote group of low-lying islands. Web search results indicate extensive media interest in the atoll and the present and anticipated forced relocation of its population of more than 2,000 due to imminent danger of inundation and permanent submersion. In short, media publicity appears to have made the Carteret Islands one of the most widely reported regions of interest in the world with feature stories published by major global news outlets. End note four. Given a certain tendency in news reporting towards sensationalist representations with headlines such as Pacific Atlantis, first climate change refugees, and note five, and recurrent characterizations of the Carteret Islands as the world's first environmental refugees or first climate change refugees, the pilot study also set out to learn more about the preferred self-descriptions of the islanders themselves. And note six. The pilot study raised important ethical issues and questions, including bullet point one. How do communities perceive extensive and sustained outside interest in their situation? Bullet point two. Is it possible to over-research locations or populations of interest? And how might this impact on the people or impinge on the results? Bullet point three. Is there an ideal amount of research? Given the unforeseen effects that research can have on communities and migration hotspots, is it better to err on the side of less research rather than more? Bullet point four. Do communities in hard-to-access locations benefit sufficiently from media publicity, and do they receive follow-up about research findings and outcomes? Bullet point five. Might recurrent research visits, sustained over time, generate unrealistic expectations about possible future assistance regarding adaptation, relocation, or resettlement, and or financial support? Bullet point six. Does frequent interviewing generate research fatigue and might habituation to repeated questioning over time itself influence or skew the research results? Bullet point seven. Does publicity ultimately contribute to the protection of vulnerable people by making their situations more widely known, or is it conceivable that vulnerable communities might even be in need of protection from publicity? Bullet point eight. Does publicity promote 
Disaster tourism? Bullet point nine. Might it be ethical to regulate access to certain locations in some circumstances, or might such gatekeeping be experienced as unhelpful, patronizing, or inhibitive of knowledge creation and thus become unethical? And bullet point 10. Should human research ethics committees at universities incorporate additional guidelines into their research ethics procedures? For example, ensuring that findings are, at the very least, shared effectively with research participants? Or might the cumulative administrative burden associated with governing burgeoning ethics compliance needlessly encumber or even impede future research? While these cannot all be answered, it is likely that overreporting on the Carteret Islands has, at least in part, contributed to a diminishing sense of local agency. Islanders could be forgiven for assuming that high levels of outside interest, sustained over years, would surely result in some kind of financial and or practical assistance, which, for the most part, has not happened. In this sense, the media cycle has posed problems. Ethics compliance. For whose sake? To me, as a researcher, the large amount of paperwork involved in recruiting research participants for the study and documenting ethics compliance seemed time-consuming and cumbersome. The participant information and consent form consisted of pages of written information addressing such areas as participant selection process and purpose of study, description of study and risks, confidentiality and disclosure of information, complaints and feedback to participants. In view of low rates of education and literacy in the region of investigation, it needs to be asked whether extensive printed information in English is necessarily the best mechanism. Furthermore, participants were required to choose from a selection of options to indicate how their comments should be attributed. Participants were then required to date the form, print and sign their names in the presence of a witness, who was also required to print and sign their name and state their relationship to the participant and or provide additional information about themselves. Research participants were also handed a revocation of consent form. This provided them with the option of revoking their consent if they subsequently changed their minds about having participated. However, bearing in mind that at the time of the research visit, there was no electricity, email, mobile phone infrastructure, post office, or regular ferry service on the atoll, using the revocation document would have posed significant practical hurdles for any islander wishing to revoke their prior consent. In any case, none were received. A third form comprised a confidentiality statement for interpreters to be signed, printed, and dated, which also needed to be signed and printed by a witness. By signing the form, the interpreter also consented to, quote, adhere to university ethics guidelines and procedures, end quote. A fourth document, the Appearance Release Form, was intended to ensure that any people filmed or photographed during the research consented to its use in, quote, promotional, educational, and editorial material, including publications, marketing material, videos, television, and webcasts, end quote. The fifth and final document, the Location Release Form, requested signed permission from signatories to allow the researcher to film and take photographs on the signatory's property. In practical terms, satisfying the administrative requirements of research ethics imposed by the university's Human Research Ethics Advisory Panel and the institution's media department seemed to hamper researcher-participant interactions. After I had established a level of trust following a simple introduction, 
the subsequent production of forms requiring deliberation, explanation, comprehension, and multiple signatures seem to raise immediate suspicions about the motivations behind the research and whether the study really did have the people's best interests at heart. Participants seemed visibly wary about why there was a need for this much legal formality. It is not inconceivable that earlier high-visibility media visits may have contributed to this skepticism. In this sense, over-reporting may well have contributed to islanders being particularly apprehensive about confirming written ethics consent. To synthesize, conducting the pilot study raised several questions. For example, are contemporary research ethics primarily concerned with protecting the interests of the study participants? Or are sponsoring institutions predominantly investing in protecting their own reputational interests? especially in view of today's progressively litigious legal environment? And can one ever really obtain informed written consent and research with displaced people if the context is a communal culture with limited literacy and a strong oral tradition? Furthermore, what are the commonalities and differences between research ethics and media ethics? Finally, despite the pervasive media coverage of the Carteret Islands, there seems to be comparatively little genuine systematic empirical research available in the peer-reviewed literature. It seems that while the Carteret Islands may well have been overvisited and overreported, it is unclear, if a rigorous definition of research is to be applied, that they have in fact been over-researched at all. By Johannes M. Lutz at jluetz at chc edu.au Senior Lecturer, Postgraduate Coordinator and Research Chair, Christian Heritage College, Brisbane, at www.chc.edu.au Adjunct Academic, School of Social Sciences, UNSW, Sydney, at https colon slash slash socialsciences.arts dot unsw dot edu dot au and note one the author thanks boniface wadari for his research assistance in bougainville and john connell and ben myers for constructive comments grateful acknowledgement is also made to unsw sydney and world vision international and note two lutz jm 2008 planet prepare Preparing Coastal Communities in Asia for Future Catastrophes. Asia-Pacific Disaster Report, World Vision. Available at www.wvi.org slash asia-pacific slash publication slash planet-prepare. End note 3. Connell J. 2015. Vulnerable Islands, Climate Change, Tectonic Change and Changing Livelihoods in the Western Pacific. In The Contemporary Pacific, Volume 27-1, pages 1 to 36. Available at https colon slash slash core.ac.uk slash download slash pdf slash 32302769.pdf. And note four. See also Bronin R. 2014. Choice and Necessity. Relocations in the Arctic and South Pacific. 
Forced Migration Review, Issue 45, at www.fmreview.org slash crisis slash b-r-o-m-e-n. End Note 5. Vidal J., 2005. Pacific Atlantis, the first climate change refugees. In The Guardian. Available at bit.ly slash capital V-I-D-A-L dash capital P-A-C-I-F-I-C dash capital A-T-L-A-N-T-I-C dash 2005. End note 6. C. Lutz, J.M. and Javier P.H., 2018. We are not refugees, we'll stay here until we die. Climate change adaptation and migration experiences gathered from the Toulon and Nissan atolls of Bougainville, Papua New Guinea. In Liao Philo W., Editors, Climate Change Impacts and Adaptation Strategies for Coastal Communities, published by Springer Nature, Chem. Available at bit.ly slash capital L-U-E-T-Z dash capital H-A-V-E-A dash 2018. FMR is an open access publication. You are free to download, copy, distribute, or link to this article, as long as it is for non-commercial purposes and the author and FMR are attributed. All articles published in FMR are licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license.